We have already said our sermon text, but I'm going to read it again since it is nice and short. This is God's holy word from Psalm 100. Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generations. The word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in you alone is all knowledge and wisdom. Grant us a true understanding of your word and give us grace to receive it with reverence and humility. May we then heed your word and put all our trust in you alone so that we serve and glorify you and show your love to those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. How well do you think a pagan nation would know their god or their gods? I mean, they're, they're just made up. They may even carve them out of wood. How well could they know those gods? They could know the things they believe about them, but could they really know them? How well did Israel know their God? He's not a carved piece of wood. He's real, but remember, they couldn't see him and live. How did they know him, and how well did they know him? How about for us as Christians? Sure, we know God as the triune God. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe that the Son, Jesus, died on the cross for us because because of His love for us. And by that, He forgave our sin. And He made us children of God. As Christians, we believe all of that and know God is our Heavenly Father and our Savior. But really, how well Do you know your God? That's really the question that Psalm 100 is pointing to. Do you know your God? Psalm 100 is called a psalm of thanksgiving. And that comes from verse 4. Enter into his courts with thanksgiving. The whole psalm talks about coming before God and thanking and praising him. Now, with that being the case... Doesn't that seem like the author assumes his audience knows this God? I mean, who else would praise him? Why would you tell people to praise and thank God if they didn't even know him? And yet, look at verse 1. It says, Make a joyful shout to the Lord, all you lands, all you nations, literally all the earth. Psalm 100 was written by an Israelite telling the whole earth to praise Israel's God. 
Now, if you were one of the people in those pagan nations around Israel, what would you think? Wouldn't you think, well, what an arrogant Israelite. Why should I praise his God? My nation is bigger and mightier, so obviously my gods are mightier than his. Israel was a tiny nation in a huge world. There were many other nations. Why should any of them turn to Israel's God? Well, Israel even had the audacity to say, theirs is the only God. And they also said they had a special relationship with their God. Now, it wasn't because of anything that they had done. Now, they had this special relationship because God had chosen them. They knew him as Yahweh. That was his covenant name that he had given to them. They were his chosen people. He had miraculously delivered them from slavery to the Egyptians. There were all kinds of amazing, miraculous things that God did to accomplish that. They saw all he did and they knew he delivered them. They knew they didn't have anything to do with it. And by his choice, they were his people. So at least in that respect, they had learned who their God was. But all the other nations on the earth, they worshipped idols of some sort. They didn't know Israel's God and of course, they didn't worship him. So, Don't you think it's an interesting way to start this psalm by telling all those nations to worship a God they don't know? Something else that's interesting about this first phrase, it says, make a joyful shout to the Lord. Now some translations say make a joyful noise. And and many times people will say, well, I don't sing very well, so I make a joyful noise. Well, In the Bible, we are commanded many times to sing to the Lord. And it's definitely better to join with God's people and sing, even if you don't know how to sing very well. It's better to do that than to disobey those commands and not sing to him at all. But that's not what this is talking about. This shouting or making noise, it's not talking about singing. It's when a king is about to appear before his people. They all gather around and he steps out on the balcony, sits on his throne and he delivers a great speech to them. And then the people shout, long live the king. They loudly exalt him and proclaim their loyalty to him. That's the noise. They make a joyful shout of praise and submission to their king. We have a place where we can do this in our worship, many places, actually. When we say amen, that is our joyful shout of our submission to God and his word, to the word preached even from the hymns that we sing. So shout joyfully when it is time to say Amen, in answering to those. So the psalmist commands all the people of the earth to acknowledge with a loud voice, this is the one true God of all the earth. You are our God. We submit to you. 
But those people, they, they don't even know him. What did, what did Pharaoh say, for instance, in Exodus 5, chapter, or chapter 5, verse 2, when Moses told him to let Israel go into the wilderness to hold a feast? What did Pharaoh say? Well, who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh, nor will I let Israel go. So, with such an interesting beginning, what's this psalm all about? Well, if we let's back up a little bit and get a bigger picture here. Some of you know that I enjoy doing wood turning. Wood turning is when you take a piece of wood, it can even be a log from a tree, and you, you mount it on a machine called a lathe. And it spins the wood around really fast, and you use sharp tools to then carve that wood and make various things out of it. It, it could be a bowl or a goblet or a candle holder, a chair, all kinds of artistic things that you can make out of wood in that way. And as with any artistic project, there are many things to take into account. For instance, there's a, there are a lot of different ways to look at the wood that you're using. There's the grain. And then there are any, any knots or other interruptions in the grain that, that add character. There are different colors of wood. And, and some woods even have very different colors within them. Like black walnut, for instance, that dark brown heartwood and the almost white sapwood around it. They can add a lot of contrast to your design. And then, not even looking at the wood or the color of the wood, there's the shape of the piece. What kinds of curves and, and decorative forms do you want to use to make it an interesting piece? While you're working on it, you, you stop the lathe and, and you look at the wood to see it from different sides, to see what else you want to do. Well, as any type of art, whether you're, you're composing a symphony or, or you're painting a beautiful landscape or you're composing a poem, you have many choices and ideas like that to deal with. Psalm 100 is a poem. And a skillful poet creates many facets to his poem. So as you read it and you think about it and you look at it from different angles, what you see there's much more, than you, much more there than you originally thought. Well, in the same way, Psalm 100 has many facets to it. We're going to look at a few of them to see how the psalmist directs his audience to answer the question, do you know your God? One facet to look at is to see what the psalm is primarily about. What's repeated over and over? What seems to be the main subject of the psalm? Well, when you look it over, an interesting thing to note is that the word Lord, all in uppercase letters, appears four times. And when our Bibles use all capital letters like that, it, for Lord, that means it's the covenant name of, of God, Yahweh. So the name of Yahweh is used four times in this short psalm. But if you look closer, you notice that every verse, in fact, every line refers to Yahweh at least once, some more than once. 
Four of the lines use his name, but in every other line, he's still referred to by his or he or him. In fact, Yahweh is involved with every verb. Every action word in the whole psalm. It's as if the psalmist is saying, it's so important to know and praise Yahweh that no line should be spoken without referring to him. He really wants the audience, us, to focus on Yahweh. To know who Yahweh is. So, so that's one facet of the psalm. The focus of every line is on God, on Yahweh. Now, if we, if we turn this poem a little bit then and look at another facet, from a big picture, Psalm 100 is divided into two stanzas. Verses 1 through 3 and then verses 4 and 5. And in each stanza, the psalmist calls his audience to praise God and then, and then he gives the reasons why. In that, in that pattern, a command followed by the reasons to obey the command, that's the form of a, Hebrew, of a Hebrew hymn. So Psalm 100 is a Hebrew hymn. And in verse 1, everyone on the entire earth is commanded to make a joyful shout to God, acknowledging and submitting to Him as God. Well, verse 2 starts with another command. Serve the Lord with gladness. Now, serve can also be translated worship. And it gives the picture of someone who's, whose whole life is devoted to serving his master with gladness. He loves his master. Now, that, that same word is also used in Psalm 2, verse 11. And there it says, serve the Lord with fear. In Psalm 2, the psalmist is talking to rebellious rulers. They need to be in fear. But here the psalmist says, the people of the earth, they must come to God, not with fear or reluctance, but gladly and joyfully, with a joyful shout of submission. It's a joy and a privilege to worship and serve this God. And then still in verse 2, another command. Come before his presence with singing. Now, if you knew this God the way the psalmist knows his God, one of the natural results would be exuberant and joyful songs of praise. But why should all the people of the earth make a joyful shout to Israel's God? Why should they worship him with gladness and singing? They don't even know him. Well, those are the, the commands of the first stanza. Now, in verse 3, it gives the reasons to obey those commands. It starts with, know that Yahweh, He is God. Now, that doesn't sound like much of a reason, does it? It sounds like more of a command. But it, it's kind of a strange command. I mean, no. What do you do with that? We tend to think of no as something you do to prepare for a test. You learn the material so, so you know the answers. But knowing God is different. The phrase, know that I am Yahweh, appears all over in the Bible. It involves experiencing God. 
and his works and acknowledging who he is, the sovereign, almighty God. And the next two lines here explain it. It says, it is he who has made us. Now, you might think just from reading that, that that's talking about God as the creator, saying that he created everyone. But the following line says, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Well, that's clearly talking about Israel. God made Israel from Abraham and later delivered them from Egypt and made them a nation. That's, that's different than just creation. The psalmist is saying, here's how we, Israel, know Yahweh. He, he made us. He miraculously gave Abraham in his old age a son. And we came from him. We saw God work. We were slaves in Egypt, but God miraculously delivered us and made us a nation. We are his people. The sheep of his pasture. He loves us and takes care of us. So the psalmist is saying, the way you know God is by recognizing his work, submitting to him, loving him, and obeying him. And he cares for you. Israel's very existence as a people and as a nation witnessed to Yahweh because Israel was a nation created and chosen by Yahweh to show the world his glory, his grace, and his goodness. They're a witness to Yahweh to draw people to him. I mean, could they have become a nation while they were enslaved by the Egyptians without God's intervention? No way. Had any other nation experienced what Israel had experienced by the clear, miraculous hand of God? No. Israel, they were just a big group of slaves. They didn't have weapons. They didn't have any warfare training. Egypt had a huge, well-equipped army with chariots. Israel was directly delivered from Egypt by the hand of God. And other nations, they had heard it, heard about it. They knew the Egyptians had been destroyed by Israel's God. Solomon knew Israel was to be a witness to God. He prayed at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. Listen to what he says. He says, Concerning a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, but has come from a far country for your name's sake, for they will hear of your great name and your strong hand and your outstretched harm. When he comes and prays toward this temple, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, that all peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. Solomon realized that what God did for Israel would draw people from other nations to him. God was their shepherd. He watched over and cared for them directly. All that God had done was a testimony, both to Israel and to all other people, that God is all-powerful and that he cares for, that he takes care of those who are, his, who are his people. So in Psalm 100, that's why everyone in the whole earth should praise him. 
He alone is God, and he cares for his people as a perfect shepherd. In the Old Testament, a king is often referred to as a shepherd to those in his kingdom. And God is shown to be the perfect shepherd of Israel. And that kind of care and provision, protection, that's offered to the people of the entire earth. For all those who submit to him as their God and king, he will be their shepherd too. So, at the end of this first stanza then, verses 1 through 3, you could summarize it and, and ask the Gentiles, all those other gods out there that you're serving, do you know your gods? You know what? They aren't gods at all. They're all fake. There's only one God, Yahweh, and he cares for his people. Look what he's done for Israel. A tiny people who were enslaved by a mighty nation. Come, bow to him and give him your praise. Give him your love and your obedience and he will care for you. Then let's look at the second stanza. It starts in verse 4 and it repeats the pattern of the first stanza. Remember, first there are commands to praise God and, and those are followed by reasons to heed those commands. It begins with, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Well, the gates are the gates in the walls surrounding the temple. And the courts are the courts of the temple. Everyone is commanded to come into the courts of the temple with thanksgiving and praise. Now, when Israel gathered for the great festivals, when they gathered to come to the Lord... That was an amazing time as all of them poured through the gates, joyously ready to, to worship and celebrate before their God. And that all sounds great, but the walls around the temple were designed to keep someone out. All the people of the earth who are not Israelites, they're Gentiles. They're uncircumcised. Uncircumcised Gentiles weren't allowed in the temple courts. So how can the psalmist be commanding them to come where they're not even allowed? Well, remember in Genesis 12, verse 3, God said to Abram, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that was a promise. Abram was just one man with his household, and he didn't even have any children yet. And centuries later, Israel is still a tiny nation. So all the families of the earth have not even begun to be blessed through Abram's descendants yet. So this psalm, is, it's looking for, it's hoping for a time that hasn't come yet. A time when even the Gentiles will be able to come into the courts of the temple and worship the one true God. The emphasis in that first stanza was on praise. And this stanza has an emphasis on thanksgiving. So after commanding everyone to come into Yahweh's courts, they're commanded to be thankful to him and bless his name. And then verse 5 gives the reasons to give thanks. And the psalmist uses three words for these three reasons. 
Three words that tell who this God is. The first one is good. For the Lord, Yahweh, is good. Now remember, the other nations worshipped idols. Wouldn't it be hard to say those idols were good? I mean, you'd be more likely to say they were capricious or something like that. If a nation, for instance, lost a battle, they wouldn't know why. And they really had no idea to find out why. So they would sacrifice one of their children to try and appease their God. Something must be wrong. So we'll try that and see. It might work, it might not. Who knows what might be required next? I mean, there's a clear example of this guessing and, and trying things like this in 1 Kings chapter 18, where Elijah has the worshipers of Baal try to get their God to light the fire for the sacrifice. Listen to what it says. So they took a bowl which was given them and they prepared it, put it on the altar. And they called on the name of Baal from morning even till noon, saying, Oh, Baal, hear us. But there was no voice. No one answered. Then they leaped about the altar which they had made. So at noon, Elijah started mocking them. He said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is meditating or he's busy. And when he says he's busy, Elijah is saying, maybe your God is on the toilet. Or he's on a journey. Or perhaps he's sleeping and must be awakened. Elijah is really making fun of them. So they cried aloud and cut themselves as was their custom with knives and lances until the blood gushed out on them. And when midday was past They prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Well, no one paid attention because no one was there. Their God wasn't God. So what kind of words would you use to describe their God? Silent? Moody? capricious, non-existent, you certainly wouldn't say he was good. And then when Elijah prayed, God not only burned the sacrifice, but he, he burned up the stone altar and the sand that was all around and even all the water they had poured on it. Then all the people fell on their faces saying, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh is God. And the psalmist says, He is good. Now, we have our ideas of what we think goodness means. We contrast with what what we think of as evil. There are good deeds and evil deeds. We have good days and bad days. We think of certain people as good people and others as, as bad people. But it's different when the Bible says God is good. Everything God does is good. All his attributes are good. All his decrees are good. All his actions are good. There is nothing in God that is not good. 
In fact, God's goodness is the standard for good. In other words, we get our definition of good by looking at God. To praise God for his goodness is to praise God himself because God is good. He defines good by who he is. Do you know your God as good? To know him as good is a tremendous comfort. Because if God is good and all God does is good, the one who holds you in his hands is always and only good. He's not capricious like the fake gods. And no matter how you may feel at times, no matter what's going on, he's not looking for spiteful ways to make life miserable for you. No, because he's good. When we're tempted to worry or doubt or fear, or when some big life catastrophe happens, We need to remember that everything that God is and does is good. We need to know it. We need to know it not just in our heads, but throughout our being. And we need to rest and trust in it. We need to know our God and know that he truly is good in every way. Now next in verse 5, it says, His mercy is everlasting. The word for mercy is translated several ways throughout the Old Testament. Mercy, love, kindness, steadfast love, loving kindness. It's the word for God's covenant love for his people. Maybe you've heard it before. It's the Hebrew word chesed. And when God passes before Moses and proclaims his name to Moses in Exodus chapter 34... He uses this word for his covenant love, chesed. He says, And Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in chesed and truth, keeping chesed for thousands. God uses it twice as he proclaims his name to Moses. It describes God's loyalty. To his people. And it's not based on their worship or their devotion to him. The pagans around, they thought that's how they could manipulate and appease their gods. By the way they worshipped them. But that's not how it is with God. He's loyal to his people simply because he has determined to place his loyal love upon them. And that loyal love is everlasting. You can count on it. Do you know your God in this way? Do you know the faithful, loyal love of your God to you? Do you know it? Are you confident in it? No matter how difficult, again, that life may be, if you're God's child through faith in Christ, God's never-ending loyal love rests 
upon you. And the final reason to thank and praise God given here is because, as it says, his truth endures to all generations. This is God's faithfulness to his word. What he says, he will do. What he promises, he will fulfill. Until there are no more generations of people, God is faithful to his people. Now contrast that with the gods of the pagan nations. Can they be counted on for anything? Clearly not. But faithful Yahweh never changes. Do you know the faithfulness of your God? He will do what he says. So the psalmist here says to give thanks to God because he is good, he is merciful, he is faithful. So from what we've seen so far, we've looked at one facet of the psalm that has every line referring to God. In fact, God is involved in every verb, every action. So this psalm is clearly about God. Then we looked at another facet that shows there are two stanzas. And the two stanzas command all the nations to give praise and thanks to God. And, and after giving those commands, each stanza gives the reasons to praise and thank God. So let's turn the psalm again and look at one other facet. How many commands did the psalmist put in Psalm 100? Well, if you count them up, there are seven. And in the Bible, the number seven has significance. It's the number of perfection. It was on purpose that there are seven commands in Psalm 100. And if you look at those commands, you see that the first three and the last three have something in common. The first three are make a joyful shout, serve the Lord, and come before his presence. The last three are enter into his gates, be thankful to him and bless his name. They're all commands or calls to worship God. And the, the third and the fifth commands, they're actually the same word. But they're translated differently to make our English flow better and, and make sense to us. These two commands are come before his presence and enter into his gates. Come and enter. They're both the word to come before God. And sandwiched between those two is the middle or central command of the whole psalm. And Hebrew poetry often places the dominant or most important idea at the center. And what's that central command? Know. Know that Yahweh alone, He is God. And again, that word know, it's not just learn about this fact. No, this is acknowledge and know, bow down and experience that Yahweh alone is God. Experience that through your whole being. Live it. The psalmist is calling everyone in the whole earth to bow before Yahweh. Not, not as a reluctant captive, not grudgingly, not like in Psalm 2 with the rebellious rulers who had better kiss the sun or he'll be angry. No, he's calling them to bow to Yahweh with joy 
and gladness, with singing, thanksgiving, and praise. Worship him and him alone, for he alone is God. And he's not a God like the idols. He's good. His steadfast love and his faithfulness, they never end. So the psalmist looked forward to a time when all the people of the earth would worship Israel's God. When they would worship together with Israel. But has that ever happened? Well, there were some Gentiles who joined Israel, but never in a way that was widespread. Instead, eventually, Israel themselves rejected Yahweh and worshipped the idols of the nations around them. So eventually, God had them be defeated and exiled. But in verse 5, it says, His steadfast love and His faithfulness never end. In the fullness of time, hundreds of years later, God sent His one and only Son to do what Israel could not do. When Jesus was born to the Virgin Mary, wise men came from the east to worship the newborn king. They were the first Gentiles to worship. And he, Jesus, is the perfect image of the invisible God, the exact representation of his glory because he is God. While he was on earth, he made God known. And as the Apostle John says in his gospel in chapter 1, verse 14, we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And though no one has seen God, Jesus revealed him. But in spite of that, Israel rejected him again. And they killed him. But even in that, even in allowing himself to die, Jesus revealed God to us. Think about the nations and those idols. What God would allow mere humans to kill him or his son? That's absurd. He'd just smash them. They're supposed to serve and worship him. A God like those imagined by the nations, would never put up with that. But Jesus revealed the steadfast love and never-ending faithfulness of Yahweh. And Jesus' death and resurrection made the vision of Psalm 100 real again. All the nations, that that vision of all the nations recognizing that he is God. He's faithful. He's good. He places his covenant love on his people. Jesus' death and resurrection made that vision real again. And not only did the vision become real again, but he began fulfilling it. He gave his disciples the Great Commission. And they went out and they brought thousands of people into the kingdom. Jews and Gentiles. And they were worshiping together. And they went and brought others who brought others. And churches have continued to pop up and grow all over the earth. There have been 
ups and downs during that time, some severe downs with extreme persecution. But the church continues to grow. And there are now 2.3, over 2.3 billion people who claim the name of Christ. It's the largest religion on the planet. But there are still 5 billion other people who are not Christians. So there's still a long way to go. But Scripture gives us solid hope that one day, all nations will worship the Lord. Psalm 86.9 says, All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. And then we could read many other passages. When Jesus comes again, whenever that is, all the nations of the world will worship the Lord together as Psalm 100 urges and commands. And we will be there among them, among that multitude praising God. We have that to look forward to. And in the meantime, we get to do it now. By His grace, He has chosen each one of us to be here. He's united us with His Son and forgiven us of all of our sin and rebellion against Him. He's lavished on us all kinds of blessings. So many that we couldn't even count them. And He stored up for us way more than that. And He calls us every week to come together before him and thank him and praise him and receive even more blessings from him. He wants us to know him. He wants you to know him. Do you know your God like that? J.I. Packer has written a classic book called Knowing God. If you haven't read it or you haven't read it recently, I urge you to read it. Read it again. See how he puts forth to grow in knowing God. God is involved with every molecule of your body and every thought of your heart every moment of every day. He loves you as his own child because you are his own child. Submit to him. Learn from him. Pray to Him. Trust Him. Get to know Him. Know that He alone is God. He is your God because He chose you and you belong to Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your love. Thank You for Your goodness, Your mercy, and your faithfulness to us. May we grow in our understanding of you and in our love for you. Thank you that in Christ we are completely yours. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.